0: Here I'm your host for today's program. While Ed is in Ireland having a great time, I want to give a thanks to our home station, Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines, and to the other stations around the country that broadcast our show. You can also listen online or as a podcast, and the program is live streamed on Fallon Forum Facebook page. So thanks for again for joining us. I'm so excited to be hosting Ed Show again. Um and I've got some wonderful guests today. Really excited to find out more about this carbon capture um uh, environmentally friendly way of dealing with uh growing things, raising things and creating more um opportunity out there in the eco world. So I have with me today Robert Lees here. Hello. Yeah, Janelle Wooden Hair and Sheila Canoplo Adole. Canoplo Adole. <laughs>
1: That's a hard yes. one. Canoplo Adole. Canoplo Adole, yeah.
0: <laughs> and um, so you guys have started a, a, a business called Worm Resource Management Systems. And I think everyone's really familiar with worms. And I certainly have seen. Um, worm tea out there uh, using worm as they would say castings also known as worm poop Um, (laughs) and so I think what we'll do is start with you Robert and just kind of give us an overview about what are worm castings So really,
2: it's the end product of worms eating anything organic. So if it was once alive and you give it to a worm, they'll eat it and turn it into a manure, which we call worm castings, which is kind of a a neat product to use because it makes everything that was once organic into a usable product for plants again. That's very easy for plants to then use and grow off of.
0: So what would you feed worms? I mean, I've heard stories like they're kind of like goats, like they'll eat anything. Is that true?
2: It is true. I mean, it <laughs> really is amazing what you can feed to a worm and they will eat it. So one of the favorite things that worms uh, like to eat is paper, believe it or oh, not. Okay. Um, very easy for them to eat. Uh, and also it's got a lot of good nutrition then for plants once the worms eat it. Mm-hmm. I've thrown in stuff into my worm bins including uh, cotton products so jeans are a fun one to do that you can throw that into a worm bin and the only thing that comes out of jeans is the stitching the uh, zipper the pockets and the rivets from jeans <laughs> everything else is gone it, it wow. just looks like dirt at the, at the how end
0: long does it, it take a, a, a typical group of worms to do that
2: it It is really rather quick, and it also depends on how big of a piece of food that you give them. So right. if you give them a branch, it'll take them a little while to, to go through that. But you can really expect about four months, they'll turn pretty much anything into something that looks like dirt.
0: Uh, so interesting. So what is the plan for you folks with this business, um, which is still in the really early stages, but you, you, you've been doing a lot of research in this. I know this is not – we've talked before briefly, and this is not your – this is not something you came into um, at an early age. You did other stuff in your life, and then you came upon this. So what do you see worm castings as being, like, how can they help farmers? How can they help consumers? So
2: when we look at what worm castings do to the soil, it's just really amazing, all, all the properties that come from worm castings. So one, one of the neat things that comes from this is a moisture retention. As we all know, worms are slimy, and, and that sliminess of worms actually translates then into their, their castings, their manure, and so it'll hold on to water very well. Um, the other neat thing about this is that you don't need a large area to do any composting with worms. That You can do this in a very small area. In fact, there's people that are out there doing worm composting under their beds in our apartment complexes it's not real smelly very easy to do so you don't have to go to a store really then to get your compost or or your um, organic matter that you're Mm -hmm. going to use in your garden you can do this right in your backyard you can even even if you have a herb garden in your kitchen Mm -hmm. you can do worm composting right there which is kind of the neat thing so we want to Mm. develop that market so that people can use the worms uh, themselves but then also the worm castings are able to be produced close to where people live as well. And so that's what we're going to try to do is to bring this in closer to where people are instead of having it uh, far away from uh, these uh, local centers to have the worm castings
0: available and the worms. Interesting. So you're kind of creating an opportunity for folks to do this on a smaller scale in their homes or apartments and things like that. Then is there also, I mean, you know, Iowa's got some of the largest pieces of, you know, like soybean fields in the world is that, Is that something that you guys have thought about doing as well?
2: And and we will get to that point. Um, So with the uh, increased production as Mm -hmm. we go through this, we will do that as well because there is just so much organic matter that is being thrown away right now Mm -hmm. and that's another point that we need to look at how we're treating this organic waste that we're just thrown away and it's not being used at all. And the worms are a very easy way to take that and turn it into something that's a usable product.
0: So when you say organic you're saying like, okay, so blue jeans made from cotton that was once a living organism so pretty much anything that's not metal rock um, or plastic or, or plastic rubber. or yeah. rubber and I think about all the cardboard and newspaper and just tons of stuff that we throw into our I mean hopefully we're recycling but even then it's a little iffy sometimes in our recycling things uh, so that's really really cool I'm so excited and I want to be on your list to get my own little Worm, worm, worm packet. Worm packet. <laughs> right? Yeah.
2: No. Yeah, and it's also very fun to do. I mean, everybody. Oh, I love is worms. A, I mean, I, yeah.
0: I mean, I just think worms are really cool. In fact, my mom taught me a worm song when I was really young to sing to get my candy during. Uh, Halloween. I won't sing it to you guys now. Don't worry. Okay. Um, okay. So then we've got Janelle. Now, this is another aspect of what you guys are doing. You're not just doing worm castings. You're also doing some carbon capture and some char. Biochar. Biochar. So mm-hmm. tell us what is biochar.
3: Um, biochar is taking um, organic waste so, you could use food, but it's shown that wood um, organic waste mm-hmm. tends to work the best. But you put that through a pyrolysis process um, and you make something called biochar. So, what's a pyrolysis process, yeah. right? There's a specific temperature to get different gradient sizes of char and also um, amount of like bio oils versus char. Uh, so, you take that organic mass, you put it in a low oxygen environment Mm -hmm. during that burning and you make biochar and what's great about biochar is that it's very porous so it um, is a great soil amendment because it holds water it creates a home from for microbe activity Mm -hmm. which really helps the symbiotic uh, relationship between your soil and your plants so you create a better root system and you get a better biomass output which you see above the ground in your plants
0: Oh, my gosh. So this sounds like a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I know especially when we do this monoculture farming, it just sort of strips the soil. I mean, we're really worried about water quality issues in this state, mm-hmm. especially in Iowa. But I think our soil state is probably even more detrimental as far as how it helps us create our food that we're going to be eating, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, so this sounds like a way that can help mitigate some of that.
3: Yes. And there are so many different applications mm-hmm. that we're looking into. Um, and it's great for, if you think about the amount of fertilizer people use Mm -hmm. on their lawns or, um, on their crops or garden beds, this would reduce your amount of fertilizer needed because it holds that fertilizer nutrient in your soil for longer. Um, so less fertilizer, less fertilizer or nitrogen leaching into our Mm -hmm. water, Mm -hmm. we, um, have some of the most polluted water nitrogen-wise in the country. Um, And being able to hold that and reduce it from our water would be a big, important um, consumer market, we believe.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and more sustainable. And it also sounds like if you're able to hold that in there better... It also means you wouldn't have to use as much herbicides and pesticides because your stuff would be growing and not allowing the weeds to kind of encroach. So maybe in a way it also keeps other, you know, bad uh, chemicals out, you know, or at least lower the use of those, which would be great. All right. Cool. Well, Sheila. Yes. So tell me about your part in all this.
1: Um, well, my part,
0: I, I've i been
1: given the dubious title of uh, Vice President of Agricultural and Environmental Applications Ooh, for this. Okay. And um, I'm still figuring out what exactly that means. But, you know, <laughs> we decided uh, I'm going to start by just, you know, reading our mission statement That's at great. Worm Resource Management Systems, which is we're dedicated to finding and developing unique uses for post-consumer organic waste materials. And um, we've kind of been talking around this a little bit, but one of the challenges that we're facing right now is, you know, garbage being mm-hmm. overrun by our garbage. Um, I remember several years ago, there was a, a barge that was going up and down the Hudson River because nobody wanted to take the garbage, and then Green Greenpeace put a sign on it that said, next time, consider recycling. Right? right. And it's that that kind of mindset that we have that, you know, as um, as environmentally conscious people, we, um, we want to do what we can to create a product that solves more than one problem mm-hmm. and addresses some of the environmental challenges that we have. And um, we were just on the Iowa DNR site earlier today because we wanted to look up a couple of things. And Annually, Iowans produce 556,313 tons of garbage for our landfills, and 20% of that is food waste, which has risen... Uh, 50% since uh, 2011. Now, some of that adjustment might be because things like cardboard are being more recycled, so they are less of the waste stream, but still, 20% food waste. And we know that, you know, we just in general, we waste 40% Mm -hmm. of the food grown here.
3: Well, the 500,000 number, that's... Mm -hmm um that is the food waste amount yeah. from last year. Oh, oh that's wow. the food
0: waste. Okay. In just waste Iowa or all over? That's In Iowa. That's just Iowa. Iowa. Oh, wow. Yeah. But
3: uh country-wise, uh, we're usually wasting 40% of all food mm-hmm. produced, which is massive. Mm-hmm. Um and you don't want that going into landfills because it creates more co2 and methane emissions mm-hmm. which are strong greenhouse gases of course
1: right so we feel if we can divert that mm-hmm. um, not only are we creating a good product through our worm castings but we're keeping it out of the landfill and we're putting it we're get, we're keeping it from being thrown away we're keeping it in our system it's going right. back into the soil Um and then um, uh, it was estimated that the value of all of the stuff going into the landfills, um, and this was an estimate by the DNR, is about $60 million of stuff that could be recycled. Sure. you know, And that represents potentially 6,000 jobs for Iowans that we are not
0: taking advantage of. Um, could that also be food that people could actually eat? Considering sure. we have a we have a little bit of a food crisis in this state and in the country in general.
3: And country wise, one in seven people are food insecure. Yeah. meaning they don't know where their next meal is coming from.
1: Yeah, right. So we're not exactly in the uh, redistribution. Uh, business mm-hmm. of you know saving food and getting it to hungry people, but we are, we are in the business of taking you know that food waste and turning it into something that is usable.
0: I've got some wonderful folks here. We're talking about uh, worm castings, also known in um, other worlds as worm poop, and it's pretty amazing stuff. Uh so we were we ended up the last segment. And you were telling us about um, waste in general. And so then you were going to say something about, Palate, pallet, pallet. pallets, what right?
1: Is, yeah, right. Um, just you know, we were talking about waste stream diversion, and um, although the pressures that are on our landfills today, landfills are incredibly hard to, to open right now. So you know, the more we can do to divert waste, the better off we're going to be. Well, you mean
0: open like develop, like in other words, building a new, building a new landfill because they're, they're already and they're already a lot of our capacity, right? Exactly, and they're burying stuff upon buried stuff, and, right? Okay, exactly, I see what because you're who wants to have Nobody. a
1: landfill? open up next to them, right? So there's a lot of, you know, resistance to that. And um, one of the things that we're working on with the biochar side of things is um, using shredded pallets, And because we discovered that, um, you know, the DNR has a waste exchange uh, webpage where Mm -hmm. you can go and you can see all different kinds of... um, Products, waste products that people have, you know, that could be reused if somebody wanted yeah, them. Like,
0: and so wood pallets being the ones that the forklift, right? Gets in okay, and we, I know there's tons of there's those around. There's tons of them
1: because you know they're they're incredibly cheap and efficient for moving products from one place across the world or across the country. But then when they get to that destination. The pallets are not returned. They're just left there. So they keep making new ones and, Mm -hmm. you know, keep. And so we found that um, there's several postings on there for wood pallets that they post over a million pounds annually of wood pallets alone. And that doesn't include things like storm damage, breakage, or any other kind of wood. This was pallets alone. And um, we figured out that 57% of wood pallets are not recovered. Um, and so we see this as a as a real opportunity to get a cheap source for creating our biochar and taking that out of that taking it out of the waste stream yeah. and and turning it into something useful. And then Robert's going to explain a little bit how we're going to mix that. You know, we have we have several uh, products that we can offer at Worm Resource Management Systems. And you know, you can get the worms, you could get the biochar, you can get a little bit of the mix. And I'll let uh, Robert talk. about about that.
2: Right. Uh, so once we take pallets and turn that into biochar, that isn't really a very nutritious source for plants. And mm-hmm. so we need to put nutrition in there for the plants to be happy. And so that's where the worm castings mm-hmm. come in. And so not only are there pallets on the waste exchange, but there's all kinds of neat things that you could find for feeding worms like coffee grounds or food waste or uh, produce waste or or crop residues and so we look through these different sources of organic materials that we can feed to the worms and we look at what kind of nutrition are in each of these because coffee grounds are going to have a different nutrition than say uh, banana peels, right? Right. Um, So that way we are going to formulate then this mixture of uh, food sources to create a high quality worm poop and then mix that in with the biochar. So then the properties of biochar that hold on to all these nutritional side of things make this a perfect mix.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm, almost sounds yummy. Am mm-hmm. I getting hungry because I'm hungry? <laughs> or...
1: No. And, and, and the biochar um, retains water as well, so your soil will have more moisture in it too. Mm-hmm. And that's really important now that our climate is changing and, you know, we're seeing some of these stretches of super hot days and then these big gushing downpours Delicious, that just yeah. just wash away unless there's something to hold it there. So, you know, that biochar will act as something to hold that moisture there for the plants. Cool. Mm -hmm.
2: So you can see that, you know, this mix with the biochar and the worm castings, it's really just like a match made in heaven, honestly, because it just works so well together. Um, And that's where we're going to take advantage of both of these, put them together, Mm -hmm. so that way... um, Yeah, we get the maximum benefit from both the nutrition of the worm castings and then also then these aspects of biochar holding on to nutrition, holding on to moisture, um, changing soil structure and all that good stuff.
0: So I have a yard, and I don't particularly love... Creeping Charlie and uh, crabgrass and all this other stuff, but I won't use any chemicals, partly because I don't want to be a party to this runoff issue, but also I have animals and they go outside and sure. I-, I walk around barefoot. So is this something that like just a regular homeowner could put on their yard that would just help with the grass? Absolutely.
2: Oh, absolutely. And that's another neat thing about both of these products is that their size and and their ability to flow through a regular spreader Mm -hmm. is very easy. And, again, we're talking about things that are non-chemical, non-reactive, that are Mm -hmm. easy to work with with your hands without having gloves on and tools. You could
0: even, like, not have to aerate because it sounds like aeration is poking holes is trying to do this sort of thing that that biochar is already doing naturally when it gets in there. Right. In a way. Absolutely. And
2: Janelle could talk a little bit more about biochar and how that actually works.
0: Okay,
3: great. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Um, So, uh, well, one of the first things you need to do usually working with biochar is charging it or inoculating it. So the Pores that I was talking about um, that the biochar has mm-hmm. it are great spaces for microbial activity to um, prol- proliferate and create a community there. Mm-hmm. So, oftentimes, you can charge it with your own soil, um, but also compost teas if you want to make that charging uh, time decrease. Mm-hmm. Or you could do it with. Compost, and that's where our ideas of making already pre-mixed uh, compost and biochar would be nice, especially for the home grower, mm-hmm. because it's already charged with that microbial population um, and is ready to be used or applied. Um, but also, one some neat um, variables or about biochar is. It's cation exchange capacity, uh, which means that um, it attracts uh, elements like magnesium, mm-hmm. calcium, potassium, things your soil needs, and symbiotic um, nutrients your plants need to grow, uh, and. Biochar is also very stable due to its structure, so it can last in your soils for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So what when you put it there, it's good for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is seen all over the world. This is not something new, I would say, is mm-hmm. an important thing, that there are studies of... Uh, biochar being left in soils for hundreds of years and making the soil more fertile in areas that have been very um, poor in nutrients. Mm -hmm. So like Brazil, Mm -hmm. right? There's the terra praetum. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Some people might be
1: familiar with terra preta, it's the soil in the Amazons that was put there thousands of years ago by, we're not sure who or how they did it, but they're finding that that charcoal, that biochar is still in the soil thousands of years later. And it's, it was something that was clearly put there because the natural soil is very poor in the rainforest.
0: Gosh. And, 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 you know, I I sent this article to you, but so New York Times Magazine did a really nice Article in their Sunday magazine about um, carbon capture, and, and mm-hmm. this was in all the stuff was in there. And I thought, ooh, mm-hmm. this is interesting. I have to send this to you guys. Mm-hmm. But it, the the, our, the the writer talked about so nutrient runoff and mm-hmm. how there was something. So it, it brought all these great things like the calcium, all these great things to help things grow. But it also kept something that we don't want leaving the earth, the ground, which mm-hmm. is. Um, carbon dioxide. Am I getting that right? right? Yeah. And so carbon dioxide is one of the most dangerous chemicals for us. Greenhouse I mean, gas, yeah, so I mean, we, and, and
3: we don't want excess in the atmosphere.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. We don't want any more than we already have. So, so.
1: biochar can act as a carbon sink. Yeah, under okay. you know under specific um, under particular circumstances. And another thing, I mean, we're also thinking about you know bigger implications too. We, we we want we want to make this really good soil available. We want to make really good biochar. We want to make worms available. But there's other other applications potentially that we see as well. And one of them is um, using it for um, riverbank stabilization. Oh yeah, you know, at mm-hmm. the edges of the farmer's field, you put in. Maybe Maybe a row of tilled in biochar to help hold the the nitrogen and the phosphorus from running into the stream bank or to just bolster the stream bank if you have a...
2: And so, honestly, what we're finding out as we're doing our research is that we're really scratching the surface as to where this is all going Mm -hmm. and all the applications that are out there. In fact, even now you can find soaps with char in Mm -hmm. them, biochar in them. And so, um, yeah, the the surface is really just being scratched in this whole industry. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of an exciting part for me is to finding out Mm -hmm. where all the places that we get to go with this. Right.
1: And another thing I want to mention before we run out of time, too, is, you know, a lot of the indoor uh, growth market, Mm -hmm, people who are doing uh, fruits and vegetables indoor for your gardening centers and whatnot, they use uh, peat moss mm. quite often as their growing medium. And we l- know that peat moss is being harvested faster than it can be regrown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we see, um, plus it releases a lot of carbon in, in, in the uh, harvesting of it. So we see biochar as potentially replacing peat yeah. moss and giving a more sustainable uh, product
0: for that indoor growing market. I wonder how mm-hmm. the bogs in uh, Ireland and Scotland are doing, because yeah. that's where a lot of the peat moss Right.
1: Well, from. we get a lot of ours from Canada, actually, yeah. mm-hmm. and it's very uh, weather dependent. And the way the weather has been changing, it has not allowed them to harvest at the level that they used to be, and it's also not being reproduced as fast. Wow. So, you know, we see this as an opportunity.
0: This to is in something sustainable. I am so excited about it, and I want to have you guys back again okay. later in the um, year and early next year and tell us more about what's going on. Yeah, okay. we would love to do that. Absolutely. So we've got two minutes. Is that what you said? Yeah. Oh, okay. We got two minutes. Sorry, I was like <laughs> thirty seconds. Um, so, well, what is your next step as far as you know, business, as far as research, um, and also, are you looking for investors? Is this something that you're kind of looking at um, as a way to grow?
2: So right now we're we're not actually looking for investors. We've given ourselves a period of time to develop this idea, Mm -hmm. develop the uh, formulation of uh, feedstocks for the worms, and make sure that we have a high quality product. And there are a lot of different ways that you can make biochar, and so we're sifting through what's going to be the best way for the agricultural purposes, and what can also uh, develop into other feedstocks that are other waste products Mm -hmm. that we can use for um, producing biochar. and certainly looking then at um, what biochar does to the structure of the soil. So uh, once we get through this development stage, then we would maybe be looking at um, formulating some partnerships, sure. especially with greenhouses and growers. And so we're very interested in people that are maybe looking for an alternative to the peat moss that they're mm-hmm. using that mm-hmm. might be h- willing to help us develop and test some of these products. You know, right mm-hmm. now, that's kind of where we're at. And mm-hmm. and we'd love to hear from you if you are out there.
0: Yeah,
1: we're looking for early adopters. Well, Absolutely. You know. <laughs> <laughs> right? <And> so, <laughs> Laura's raising her hand.
0: <laughs> well, that's so cool. Um, mm-hmm. Well, so it sounds like, too, that this technology is still fairly new, although I know the process of, the, of how this is, works is not new. It sounds mm-hmm. like it's pretty ancient. Yeah. But as far as this char, the biochar machine and how that works, so it's going to be interesting to see how the technology changes. I know you have a little bit of engineering background. Actually, um, one
2: of our partners. Nami, mean, I've got the worm background, so I've been doing worms for a little bit yet. But mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, we should give a shout-out to Bud Carlson,
1: who's our engineer. He's uh, coming from Brown Engineering, and um, we're excited to have him on board, Brilliant too. guy. I
0: forgot. It was air, air, airplanes. You right. have the airplane yes. background, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Well, thanks so much again, guys. We'll talk to you later. Thank All you. right. Thank, Thank you, you, Laura. Laura Faraci here hosting today's program. Well, thanks again, Ed, for letting me host today. Um, we the first half of the show we had a couple of folks on that were talking about worm castings um, and biochar and waste stream divergence, diverting uh, really interesting stuff. And I, I think as we as we look at farming and um, how America feeds its populace, and don't forget we're feeding a lot of other people and other four-legged critters in the process, it's kind of an unsustainable uh, way that we're doing it. it it's just not sustainable. Um, and and along with, you know, how we deal with our soil and our water streams, there's also this um, whole CAFO, uh, you know, large animal feedlots and, and, uh you know where is this food going? I mean, if if ninety percent of Iowa's food is being imported into Iowa, and we're the breadbasket of the world, how does that work? So we're we're sending soybeans down to Central uh, South America and Mexico, and and China. Uh, we're sending pork to China and south of us. Um, corn, you know, corn where we're using a lot of our corn that's grown in Iowa, pretty much all of it is feed corn or used for ethanol. And it just, it doesn't like, it seems like doesn't, that's not going to work for ever. And so how do we become not only more sustainable in an environmental aspect, but also more sustainable as a community that is sustaining itself? Uh, And so today in the Des Moines Register, um, you know, we all know that that Trump is is dealing with um, China on tariffs. He left the G7 uh, summit this weekend early. Um, And I guess he wasn't, you know, people weren't sort of kowtowing to him enough. Um, He sounds like he's pretty mad at at Justin Trudeau, uh, Trudeau uh, the Prime Minister of Canada, um, and it's created a lot of uneasiness for American farmers, especially. Um, we've already seen tariffs, and and uh, and that's affecting the um, the steel industry. It's affecting. Uh, you know stainless steel all kinds of steel that we use and farmers in particular use a lot of this stuff a lot of their equipment um, is made from steel pretty much anything within agriculture with animals or food they have a lot of this equipment that is made from steel so I think farmers are really getting um, kind of hit from both sides um, and, and one of the things that the the new tariffs um and it just happened. It has happened so fast, you know. It, it's crazy. You you spend you know years creating, you know, NAFTA, which is not perfect for sure, and even the um, trans the, the 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 TPP, which is the Asian countries, um, and and how we trade with them, and then you know with sort of a drop of a dime, those things are over, and. It doesn't sound like there's a lot of time being spent on really getting down to the bare bones of, you know, creating better trade policies for America. And uh, pork producers are, are really on the ground floor of this. They're calling it the end of the spear. Um And as in (laughs) they're the first to get hit and uh, they're saying stuff like blood on the floor, thanks to the new punishing tariffs. Um, And but it's interesting. The the industry leaders, you know, they're 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 scared. They're not feeling real confident, but they're just stopping short of saying they would force um, this growing industry to downsize. And meanwhile, you've got new pork-producing CAFOs um, opening up in a couple of different places in Iowa. Uh, so it's just – I don't know. It's, it's an unsustainable thing, and um, I really hope that folks um, are paying attention to this. Even if you're not a farmer, this is going to affect everybody in the United States. Talking about how um, industry leaders within the pork – the U.S. pork producers um, have basically just kind of stopped short of saying they would force um, the industry to downsize and this industry is growing I mean we're primarily seeing most of our pork go to China which we all know is like humongous country Um, and even with their one child policy that they had for years you know there's still a lot of people to feed all over the country and you know the the recipe has been to grow as quickly as you can a pig, feed it as, you know, as cheaply as you can, um, and, you know, squeeze as many as you can into a um, a hog confinement. And uh, that's kind of the formula that the um, U.S. pork producers use to um, grow pork, and and primarily most of our pork chops and bacon and all products from the pig are coming from an industry that does that, as a rule. Uh, Now, myself, I love bacon. I love pork. I also understand that an animal that is eating healthfully, getting sunshine, being outside, exercising... Is going to taste 110% better than a pig that is, you know, overweight, pumped full of antibiotics as a prophylactic, by the way, which is just crazy. Um, we know this has created a situation a, a medical emergency in this country, as far as how our um, antibiotics are, you know, sometimes not working for humans. And... When I read this article this morning um, in the Des Moines Register, I just it just blew me away. So here we have the situation where demand is basically dropping. Whether it's because there's so much, um, you know, the, the market is kind of glutted with cheap pork, and then these tariffs. So if we're not selling our pork to China. And we're not selling our pork to Mexico. And I'm not saying these things I mean, I, I know that the China thing has kind of already happened and gone into effect with metals, with with uh steel. Um but yeah, it sounds like, you know, and then our farmers here are kind of I mean, just not knowing I think is probably the worst thing for our farmers. You know, not knowing because they're not planning for tomorrow and the next week. They're planning for the next growing season. They've got to get their seeds. They've got to, you know, there's all this planning that goes into uh, farming and our government it just seems to be kind of winging it. And I guess there's, you know, rumblings or, I mean, I don't even know what you would call it, um, whisperings from the Trump administration that this summer, Um, All these tariffs that could hurt farmers are going to be um, situated in a way that's not going to hurt them. Um, What does that mean? So here in Iowa, we have a lot of CAFOs. And and CAFO, uh, C-A-F-O, it stands for, um, let's see, uh, Concentrated Agricultural, uh, what is it? Farm something. Basically, it's just, you know, you, it's a building that you shove a bunch of animals into. and Confinement? Con- thank you. Confinement operation. <laughs> Thanks. That was our producer. She's paying attention. Um, and one of, so in this article, they're, you know, talking about the new tariffs and how that's going to put a squeeze on Iowa poor producers. And Prestige Farms, um, which is a, uh, it's a local, well, I mean, I guess it is locally owned. I mean, it's an Iowa business, but they have quite a few uh, pork processing uh, plants and KFOs um, in Iowa. And they are right now building a three hundred million dollars pork pork processing plant near Eagle Grove. Um, and then another company, Seaboard Triumph, uh, is is opening its three hundred also three hundred million dollars pork plant in Sioux City in September. And then you've also got one opening up in Michigan. Um, And that basically creates a 10% more capacity for processing than, um, you know, for the year 2019, 2018, 2019, than there was in 2015. So while there's blood on the floor, I mean, I don't know We're, I guess they're pork producers, so that's what their analogy is going to be. But – Make no mistake that it's going to hit farmers big and it is a very competitive industry. And you know, China's not going to be buying, I mean, they're already not buying cars from us, they're going to electric cars, so they're not even buying cars from us. They could give a hoot about metal and steel tariffs, you know, Uh, they'll just make their own cars, and pretty soon they're going to be making their own. You know, KFOS. I mean, they're they're going to be feeding their own people. So why aren't we feeding our own people? That's what I want to know. Um, and the other thing is, if we continue with this, and we create so many more pork, you know, pigs out there, and no one to buy it, then what happens? Well, we kind of know what happens with that. Um, just like with other commodities. If you have too much milk on the market, the milk prices go down. Then the dairy farmers don't make any money. Same with cheese. Uh, pretty much the same with everything. And we've created a situation in this country where our our sort of value system on food is not based on reality. I buy a lot of my food locally. I choose to do that. It maybe is a tiny bit more expensive you know, over time. Um but actually I I just you know, if I get it through a CSA in the summertime and things are pretty cheap, I might spend a little bit more money in the wintertime to get food that's fair trade and organic from other places in the country. Um but knowing that I am helping an industry move forward sustainably is worth it for me i will gladly pay an extra dollar for milk that is made chemically free and local i would gladly pay 50 cents to two dollars more for um a dozen eggs that were laid by hens that aren't stuck in a big confinement building and you know where every morning they have to walk through and carry out the dead chickens uh I will gladly pay a little extra money for vegetables and fruits that are grown, even just chemically uh, free. I don't necessarily have to see um, that this farmer is organically certified. I know that that's expensive. It's a process. If I'm able to look at my farmer in the eye and they tell me that they're chemical free as much as they can be, that's good enough for me. And I love that relationship with my local farmers. And that is just the saddest thing for me as as an Iowan, to see that relationship be eroded over the years. I mean, it's almost enough to make you want to cry. And we look at these rural communities where you've got more horses than children. And you think, well, how continuing to do farming this way, how is this helping people? And it's not. And I think... Ron Prestige, president, okay, so he's not local, I'm sorry, he is from North Carolina. Um, So, the president of the North Carolina based Prestige Farms, uh, he is quoted in this article as saying he would, um, even if the tariffs hadn't happened, or he would have made the same decision. even if he'd known about the tariffs. So he didn't know about the tariffs a couple of years ago when he decided to build this pork um, uh, processing facility here, which by the way, North Carolina legislature has really cut down and um, on not only CAFOs, but putting a lot more rules and regulations on CAFOs because their, their whole state was basically just covered with CAFOs. And that is why, Um, Mr. Ron Prestige is coming to Iowa because he can't put any more on the ground in his own state and he says I quote short term the tariffs right it's, it's causing problems but long term it will be good for my family it will be good for pork producers in the upper Midwest and it's going to be good for our industry so what's missing out of that my family pork producers industry everybody else What about me? What about the family that lives down the road from one of these pork processing plants? What about the consumer that wants to have a pork chop that tastes like a pork chop and not like a piece of cardboard? I know I'm being a little hard on the pork industry. But I know the difference. When I go to a farmer or a a pork producer like Carl Blake, who actually moved out of Iowa into northern Missouri because it was – Just a better environment for him there to grow his beautiful, the best tasting Fabian pig. Um, He grows these, he, he raises these pigs with love and respect. They're out there foraging in the forest. And I just can't tell you, you cannot compare that kind of pork to the conventional you know, monoculture pork that we're getting um, in our stores, um, like Hy-Vee and other places. And if we're going to bring vitality back to our rural areas, we're going to have to bring back this relationship between the the human and the the and the food that they're eating and the f- where this food comes from. So that is my big challenge to um, lawmakers and, and policymakers. Is if you want to bring back vitality and, and money and people back to rural areas, you're going to have to bring back this kind of farming that shows people the relationship because people have lost that. They've totally lost it at this point, point. and um, I'm going to continue to do my part by supporting my local farmers and CSAs. And restaurant people, uh, restaurant folks that um, are in this farm-to-table movement, which is growing, by the way, and it, that's sustainable. I'll tell you right there, that is a sustainable growth model right there.
4: Howdy do
2: me, just watch me. Smile.
0: Welcome back to the Fallon
4: Forum. Again, in the studio with me is uh, Laura Ferracci. She is involved with the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust. Uh, These kinds of uh, land trust movements are gaining momentum across the country because people are more and more realizing the importance not just of farmland, but of farmland that is committed to organic production, to production for local markets. Uh, Laura, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
4: So uh, tell us a little bit more about SILT, as it's called.
0: Yeah. So SILT, Sustainable Iowa Land Trust, is an organization that's pretty new, pretty young, We've been around, uh, this is our fourth year, and uh, we're one of only like two, I think, in the whole country, two or three, that deals uh, just pretty specifically with um, protecting uh, land in Iowa for uh, for sustainable farming, for food, for humans.
4: And when you say protecting, we're talking about... um about some kind of a permanent easement on the property mm-hmm. so that it can't be put back into commercial production or or even a road
0: yes. uh,
4: or uh, urban development. Mm-hmm. That, yes. That's correct?
0: Yes. Um, so the land trust part of this is that um, it gives farmers a third choice. So primarily farmers have two choices. You can bequeath your land um, to family members or you can sell it. And for many farmers, this is uh, their their land is an emotional attach, attachment, not just because it's been in their family for a long time, but because you know they feel a real um, sense of partnership and love for the earth that they are working in day to day. And a lot of farmers um, don't get in it for the money, unless you're a big corporate farm, and then it just you know that's a whole other. Ball of wax, but you know, family farmers (laughs) really um, are less worried about making a profit than doing good stewardship and, and growing food and things like that. And so, what SILT does is give farmers an opportunity to put that land into a safe trust. Um, that will protect it in perpetuity, and then the other side of that that's real interesting is that we bring young farmers, because as you know, land prices are crazy big, right? Um, crazy high. And, and and the
4: age of the, the average age of a, of a conventional farmer is what? 55, five, sixty. 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 I I'm the average age of a farmer. Well, and I'll be fifty in
0: you know a year and a half, but. That is, it is nuts because we, um, you know, it, it's hard work. And I'm not saying a 50 or 60 year old can't do hard work, but it's uh, you need to have young people coming in to sure. um, lead us into the future. And so what Silt does is connects young farmers um, and even veteran farmers. We have a whole program where we work uh, to get veterans back onto the land, and it's a way for them to come in and not have to uh, worry about you know huge. Um, down payment and other things, mm. um, but they do have to commit to uh, farming sustainably.
4: With, with the uh, growth of organics in Iowa, with the growing power of farmers' farmers markets, the number of community-supported agricultural operations that are out there, I would think that you would have a waiting list that was so long that it would be impossible to manage. What, what, what's that look like? Are you backed up with people wanting to be a part of this program, or are you actively needing to go out and recruit folks?
0: Well, it's still, like I said, a a pretty new organization. And it is a, a, a different and sometimes radical idea for some folks. But I'll tell you, the farmers that have gotten on board, and I think we've got now, oh gosh. So there's easements and then there's actual donation to the trust Of land and folks can mean a
4: donation of land.
0: Yeah, like like a farmer will actually donate their whole farm, and they can now when
4: when they do that, do they basically lose the economic opportunity to sell that on the on the on the market?
0: Yeah, because if you're donating, so they take a hit. They take a hit, but I will say, in taxes, it's considered a donation, so um, there are some. I mean, you. So first, I mean,
4: there's some tax benefits. There's some tax benefits even though you lose the full value full, right. sale, full sale value and some
0: farmers okay. would look at the value not in monetary terms but in keeping it from going to a firm in china or being yeah. you know the, now the that's a good being point stripped. you know and,
4: and i assume that there are things like this happening elsewhere in the country but in iowa we have a we have a law that prevents a foreign entity from owning land so but that, that's not the case everywhere
0: but that doesn't stop them well, I mean, you, you can do it through uh, uh, transversions, uh, so tax we, we, havens. I mean, you, there's ways that you can have an organization being
4: a foreign interest through the, through some yeah some legitimate organization can not own land even in Iowa. Yes, well, that's interesting to me. I did not know that because I know I know some a lot of a lot of places. This just you can come in and buy land. In fact, China, Saudi Arabia, for some reason, Netherlands. Maybe because they're running out, running out of land, they can mm-hmm. reclaim from the sea. I don't know, but there are you know, there are a lot of interests from those countries that are buying f- uh, farmland in the U.S. In mm-hmm. fact, nowadays um, we've, it's gotten so serious that that foreign ownership of land in the U farmland specifically in the U.S. equals the size of Tennessee. Ooh, it's a lot. It's, uh, Tennessee is 500 miles wide and mm-hmm. 152 miles. Mm-hmm. No, sorry, 500 miles long about 150, maybe, Mm -hmm. miles Mm -hmm. wide. It's a big area, it's a lot of farmland.
0: And if you think about what the farmland is actually doing right now, it's primarily producing uh, soybean and corn, corn for feed, to feed animals, and then soybean- uh, And to feed our cars. To feed our cars, (laughs) right? And and then soybean, um, you know, that that gets taken all over the world. And my worry is, you know, if we're importing 90% of our food into Iowa to be eaten, and we're supposed to be the breadbasket of the world, how is that sustainable? Yeah, it's not. It's not sustainable. So, SIL is really um, passionate, we are very passionate about protecting land, giving folks an opportunity they may not have otherwise had, and it's so important to recognize this sort of farm-to-table line. I mean, and it's gotten so convoluted that the farm-to-table line now is, go out of the country, across an ocean, Back over the ocean and back into our country sometimes. And how does that make sense, you know, when you can be an hour away? And so one of the things we're really trying to work on is land closer to uh, uh, urban areas because I think that, I mean, that's. Well, and
4: I I think it's important to have. You know just 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 as important to have smaller communities serviced by local food production
0: as well definitely in yeah. fact the reason why these smaller communities these rural communities in Iowa have have been going you know getting smaller and smaller and they're getting squeezed out is because we've we have this monoculture and mm. w- along with all these other um, jobs that got lost like canneries and meat lockers and um you know seed places I mean there's all these peripheral, jobs that went away when we went into this monoculture culture yeah. um way of doing business and yeah it's hurt and that, people and
4: that's been that's been an issue so um if folks want to learn more about silt again the sustainable iowa land trust uh, where do they go laura
0: you can go on to silt.org and check us out we've got a beautiful website and uh so yeah well I did, I
4: did i do want to ask you can, can urban farms apply to be protected
0: it depends on how big it is. Um, you know, we're not in the business of buying land. Right. So it really is, um, but, you know, I, th- I think that's something that we're open to as we move forward and, and, and gain more um, sort of strength in our trust. Because
4: we're seeing more and more urban for, ur- urban production yeah. as well. All right, hey, uh, thanks for joining us, uh, Laura. We'll be back in a minute. We're going to continue our conversation about environmental and agricultural matters, looking at straws and plastic bags. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. One of my pet peeves when I go to a restaurant is before I even have a chance to open my trap, a glass of ice water with a big plastic straw is there in front of me. And I have to say, sorry, could you take that back? I don't use plastic straws. You know, it's been a struggle for years. I I don't like doing that. I don't like being a little snot at a restaurant. But um, I think think this is going to get easier and easier because now we have more and more big corporations that are understanding that the 500 million straws that end up in the landfill every year are not necessary and i heard a statistic laura that uh that, it, that you could you could actually encircle the earth with the number of straws used twice so then
0: ne- that's just indeed that's just the use here in the u.s it doesn't count the whole rest of the world wow yeah but um, i but
4: i suspect we're probably the worst user of plastic straws
0: well Plastic everything. Plastic probably. everything. Yeah.
4: Well, and you know, uh, so so it looks like Hilton is going to be eliminating plastic straws at its uh, hotels around the world by the end of the year. It's also going to get rid of plastic bags from its conference and event centers. It's good.
0: Yeah, that is yeah. great. Uh, there's also uh, Bon Appetit, which is there's a magazine, but it's also an organization. It's
2: that, a chain chain restaurant. Yeah, right? they,
0: they have about a thousand food service locations. Um, and you, know, you can find them in museums and corporations in 32 states around the country. And they um, are they are no longer doing plastic straws. They've banned them all together. And uh, <coughs> folks, clients, customers will have the option to have a paper straw. And uh, that's really great. So that means that they're just from them alone, there will be, uh, let's see, here's these numbers. Uh, there'll be thousands yeah thousands and thousands i can't find the exact number but yeah
4: well hey uh, thanks for joining us Uh, laura Ferracci here with us folks on the fallon forum thanks for tuning in and uh, hope you enjoyed the show again live every monday at 11 o'clock central time you can tune in online